Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with the chair of the Historic Landmarks Commission, Anthony Grumbine. And Anthony, I just want to talk a little bit about you from my perspective. I'm a reporter, as you know, and I, I cover HLC. I the pandemic era, I'm doing it, you know, through Zoom. I used to cover meetings in person. But I have to say, it's always such a pleasure to to watch you preside over these meetings because you're obviously very knowledgeable and you're very skilled and you, you know what you're talking about, but you just have this great personality. You're just always happy and you're cracking jokes. <laughs> I've seen some of those meetings where some of those personalities can get a little strong and intense and you have yeah. a really good way of kind of disarming it and sort of like, um, you know, making it a, a calmer, smoother situation. And mm-hmm. I noticed that. So I've been for a while, been thinking like, I want to talk to that guy. He's kind of an interesting guy. So Anthony Grumbine, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Uh, great, Josh. And thanks for having me on. And yeah, it's a pleasure, pleasure to chat with you. And um, yeah, I'm glad I made HLC a little bit um, less painful than it can be. So <laughs> yeah, well, I've been a reporter a while and I really like covering these meetings because if you know a little bit about the projects and the developer and I learn about the architecture every week and a little bit of the people who serve on the board, it's it's quite an interesting little story that is being told yeah. through every project. And uh, let's dive right in. I want to talk to you, Anthony, sure. about serving on the HLC. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the city council gets a lot of attention. The planning commission, to some degree, gets attention. The ABR gets attention. Um, but the HLC is one of the most important boards in the city because you are in charge of protecting the character of the El Pueblo Viejo district. And I want to just ask you about that. Talk to me a little bit about what serving on the HLC means to you and what that what that mission is when you approach these projects at these meetings. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, it, it to, it to me, it's... Um, so Santa Barbara, sort of when, the, when you zoom out um, and you look at the big picture of like the great cities of the, our country um, and the great cities of California, great cities of our country, um, the sort of top good handful list, Santa Barbara sort of makes that cut. So it's deal, we're dealing with one of the most beautiful cities, one of the most sought after cities, um, and one of the cities that's really gotten it right um, for the last hundred plus years um, and really made a, a, something beautiful as, and, as an architect. And as a student of art history and architecture history and theory, um, that is a very interesting, that's a very particular case study, right? This like, you know, this is a top, you know, top level A plus, you know, best of the best cities that we have here um, in North America. And so part of it is interesting as to what makes it that way um, and, uh, and how it became that way and, and what makes it continue to be so loved and so beautiful and so great. So um, one, with that kind of draw of like working with this masterpiece of a city, I then kind of think like, well, first of all, the bar is set really high. Um, and how do we, but it, it, like anything, like any uh, um, civilization, any, any peoples and um, uh, in place, um, there should be good ways of growing. Um, and there's, there's good ways of growing. There's bad ways of growing. Um, we don't have to look how far, you know, not very far south, um, to see the world's biggest sprawl project, which is uh, an, <laughs> which isn't very a desirable, enjoyable place to live, like uh, Santa Barbara is, with LA sprawling everywhere. Um, so, kind of looking at one extreme and the other, 
and Santa Barbara, you have this amazing, beautiful setting. So when I start analyzing as an architect and architecture um, history um, student, uh, I kind of see those, see what, what makes it so unique and, and special. Um, and it, it, there are principles there and, there, and when you kind of dig into those principles, um, there are principles that have been applied well over time. And so the review board is, I really see as part of that, um, it's not, historic landmarks commission is not about keeping everything exactly the way it is today. Um, and that's it. El Pueblo Viejo stays exactly the, as much built out as it is. Historic structures stay exactly the way they are. I don't, I don't think that's the right way of thinking. In fact, I think that if you, if you don't, if you don't, aren't critical about what the city is, you would say, oh, well, the parking lot needs to stay exactly this big empty parking lot. And the reality is um, a parking lot is a net negative when you walk by it. It's actually a, a bad thing as a, as a pedestrian experience. And one that traditional cities, including Santa Barbara, uh, never thought would be a great thing to cover half a block or whatever. So when you look at examples and you say, well, this area and that area could really improve actually and make it for a better city, then you start thinking about what is a really great city when you finish off Santa Barbara, where you build out more of Santa Barbara to a proper, in a proper good way that keeps the bar at this A plus level that it's always been, or mostly been. The 60s and 70s were like the dark ages of architecture. So there's some ugly stuff there. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, th so that's what we're dealing with in Santa Barbara. So it's very exciting to say we're dealing with this masterpiece, but how do you even add to it and make it better? How do you actually um, improve on it? And there are ways of improving on it. And part of it is just uh, take the, you know, filling in where the, where they're missing spots and where, um, None of the great architects of the past would have thought that that was a, it was a, that where we are right now, if you free, freeze framed it, would be a good idea. Um, they would all think that you should be filling it out properly as a good traditional city that Santa Barbara has been um, built on. So that's a long way of saying that's the main reason I love it and I, the potential I think and I have with, uh, with it and the respect I have for it. And I think that the HLC has a, part of that job is to um, both protect it, but also protect it in a way that you want it to grow and flourish um, and not in a way that you want to stop it forever exactly the way it is and sort of, you know, freeze it in time. So, yeah, you, for a while, I was thinking that the people who volunteer to be on this board, these boards, ABR, HLC, must be like this dream thing, right? Like it's there's mm -hmm. a certain amount of stature and status and they're making decisions about you know, they're competitors in some cases, they're peers. Take them down. Yeah. Their projects. <laughs> but there's there's a side of it too that is there's so much pressure. Now now you're part of the the problem, right? You're yeah. part of the the system that slows down projects. Yeah. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about why, you know, you must love what you do because you've been mm -hmm. obviously you love architecture, but serving on the HLC it must come with some rewards because you've been doing it and you've been reappointed and it's something that you, you enjoy, but can you talk about that, that balance between sure. like, yeah. these are my peers and my competitors and, and I've got to make decisions that are going to affect them. Uh, but I also have to think of the city and, and it's not yeah. all rosy. Like there's a lot of pressure on you every week. Yeah, it, it is. It's true. And I think it's part of, um, it is part of those you're um, in some cases caught between these these sort of um, uh, competitive um, ideas and um, the way I kind of think of it is if we're looking at looking at it for the good of the city and the long term uh, the long term beauty as a goal beauty and functionality um, actually so I'll throw going back to 
uh, ancient architect Vitruvius um, uh, in, in Rome, and uh, he pres- he was the first architect written that has written recordings of uh, his books of architecture and his principles. And he talks about three things that are core to architecture. One is uh, firmitas, which is built to last and, and strong, um, built to last. Utilitas, it's useful. It does its function, whatever it is, whether it's an arena, whether it's a house, whether it's a, uh, you know, a temple, whatever it is. And then uh, venustas, beauty. And so the, those three principles are like the core principles of architecture and all architecture needs to have those things to, and great architecture needs to have, have them in, in abundance. And so when I look at what the kind of looking at projects, I try to frame it in that reference where is this built to last? Is it a, a well-built thing that's going to be carry on for hopefully hundred plus years, right? Is it built well? Is it have, um, is it not just of this immediate fad of style or time or whatever, but actually a quality thing that's going to be beautiful for years to come and be actually looked at like we look at these buildings that are 50, 100 years old and we, they're still beautiful and they're still great. And they're not, they weren't just of a fad. They were, they were of an, a language that was developed. And so, and there was in, ingenuity, but there's also, um, they, they have this, this, um, this uh, sort of classic feel to them that they're never going to go out of style, right? So it's built well and to last um, and, and with materials that are good materials that will um, look good, look better over the years as opposed to look worse and fall apart and, you know, vinyl windows and things like that that are, that just look, fall apart and look like garbage. Um, so you, the, so the quality is there and it's built well to last. Um, the utility and usefulness is there. And even if it ends up being rehabbed as a different thing, um, sort of traditional buildings tend to have like a Walmart, you can never disguise as anything else. Like once its use is done, it's getting torn down because it was a big box with no windows and doors for people, a mass amount of people to go in and shop. And that's all it's built for. But a good traditional building usually can get rehabbed in many different ways, can get used in different th- as different things and always looks good on the outside. So um, that kind of usefulness, but usefulness in a long-term thinking too, um, that doesn't just satisfy the needs of this immediate culture at our split at this split second um, is important and then the last you know one, the last one being beauty obviously and being part of that language of the city um, and so and there's lots of languages within that is uh, there's a lot of subtle variations throughout and there's a lot of openness I mean there's probably 10 plus different Spanish related languages that are allowed in El Pueblo Viejo um, and they're all have their own structure and rules and so beauty and how that plays into it and the expression of the architect and the owner and all those things also go into it. So I try to objectively look at it through those lenses and kind of be fair to everyone. Um, but really, you know, everyone has to meet that high bar. So um, some people don't meet it as easily as others. And um, as an architect, I appreciate that because the reality is going through school and pretty much any architecture school, you get that training, you do your design, you put it up as a, and you get critiqued. And, and every project you do, you present and you get critiqued and usually to get beat up and, you know, you feel like you've <laughs> gone around the gauntlet. Um, but also that critique, sometimes are, the, the critique isn't fair or whatever it is or whatever, it's not as good or whatever. But usually there's some good things they're pointing out that are, that are weak in your design or are good about your design. And the critique process is a great way to actually push architects to be the best that they really can be um, for their profession and for the reality is, this is for people for the next hundred plus years. So, you know, if you do an ugly job and you do a poor job, um, you, you know, you just, you just screw the rest of Santa Barbara for a hundred years. I have to look at that thing. Yeah. Um, so there is, uh, um, so there's, 
I, I kind of frame it in that sense. And at the same time, I don't, I try not to be brutal about um, applying those rules on people, but it is, I think we are, we all should be held to a high standard because we're dealing with this really ma a masterpiece. So. Yeah, that's really, that's really well said. I want to ask you about a couple specific projects, but first, what stands out like what, when you're around downtown or in the in the El Pueblo Viejo what do you point to and say that's a good one and and the, the HLC helped make that better um so I would say um yeah that's a good question um there are I think um there are lots of projects I walk by and it is interesting to see how things came out. There's always, and as an architect, you do this all the time. You design a project, you draw it, you, um, it gets built, and then you go, oh, wow, yeah, that door really is taller than I thought it was, or that, that arch is bigger, or whatever it is. Like, you realize that there's a, there, what, there was the, the on-paper thing, and then there's when it gets built and played out. So that's always an interesting thing to think, like, wow, that looked bigger than I thought, or smaller, or whatever. Um, and I think... Um, there are just so many of them and I, uh, off the, well, there's so many of them, but I also look at them in, co in context with, um, historic buildings and what, you know, is there and what really works. And so, um, and I try to kind of use the same lens on both. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not jumping yeah. out as things, something that we've reviewed that's been built and that I've seen that wasn't more than just sort of remodels or stuff. Um, recently that um, I could point to off the top. So sorry, I'm not, I'm not thinking of jumping out of example. Let me ask you about um, one of the <clears throat> projects that gets a ton of attention, which is Delaguerre Plaza. And mm -hmm. so that's right in the heart of what you uh, review, the types of projects. It's a city project. It's not a private mm -hmm. development, but it's one of those projects that everybody has an opinion on. Okay. And uh You've obviously seen it at the HLC, and there's a whole, I guess, subcommittee that talks yeah. about it. And yeah. you know, it went from being called a what was it a, a, a fountain to a water feature, <laughs> splash pad. Splash yeah. pad. That was yeah. what it originally a splash pad, and now now it's a water feature, whatever yeah. term it is. Um, let's talk about Delaware Plaza. I know you have some views on it, and you're knowledgeable, but what is you know? What do you think of the, the proposal? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a the Galeria Plaza. I mean, it has been the question for the last hundred years, right? So that this is a perfect example of like uh, where you're dealing with something that's not just like something that popped up. Like this has been a, a thorough discussion for you know a hundred plus years. Uh, with you know twenty years ago, there was a major move movement to try to really rethink it and do something with it, right? Um, it's this. It is. Um, really important to understand what a city is first off before you even talk about De La Guerra Plaza. And I think um, there's a book, um, what is it? It is called the Plaza, something Plaza De La Guerra, Reconsidering Plaza De La Guerra, um, which was the, um, which was built out of this symposium that they had um, for, uh, to, for to, to discuss it and to get to the heart of it and then to get designs and to sort of try to get a, a movement on it. Um, and I think it does, it does a great job of really going, getting to the heart of what the question is. And, and this is actually a question that we're dealing with now for State Street and dealing with for throughout the city, really, in a real, very strong way. 
which is, you know, as you revitalize things, as you develop things, what do you do and why? And before you can answer that question, I think you have to answer what is a city and what's the purpose of a city? And so De La Guerra Plaza as the, the, the city hall plaza, as the main heart of downtown plaza, even though it's off the, the path of State Street, it is symbolically and, and sort of um, placement. Um, it is the, the public plaza of downtown um, uh, as a civic uh, center and move and as a design move. So it's super important. Um, but then the question is, well, what's the purpose of the city? And if the purpose of the city in the traditional classical sense is for the good life, meaning not for us to, you know, just live in the lap of luxury, but actually as citizens to engage on a civic level with each other and have a well-developed, you know, everything from philosophy to arts to everything of, of that sort, um, and sort of live the highest level um, that we're called to as human beings, um, then the, civic, the city is to embody that. Um, and so it has the merchants and, the, and, and um, you know, that, that role of uh, the mercantile within the city and as part of the lifeblood of it, and that's important, and that's you know, State Street and getting, you know, getting a, a revitalized economic um, aspect, but that's not actually the, the most important aspect is the civic life um, of the city. And that is part of it and, and fuels it, but um, they all really need to work together. And so, um, so then the question is, okay, well, what is the most civic important plaza? What should that look like for the city? Um, which is a, a fantastic question. And part of what is being struggled with, which is also why it's a hard one to answer. Um, yeah. And, and for the record, I was the only one that voted even though it's not a historic feature, I kind of like the splash pad because I know my kids would love it. So um, <laughs> yeah, I, I had to go against my own internal philosophy uh, when, when it came to the splash pad because I could totally see the kids just going crazy and, and, and it drawing lots of families. So anyways, but, um, but yeah, and it's also the question of process and how do we actually get to a design that is for such an important place uh, that moves forward and gets something and improves on what it is. It doesn't mean that, this is the end all and be all greatest possible design ever. And it's going to lock in forever and ever, but it is a, the real question should be, how can we really improve? How can we design something beautiful, appropriate, and give something to the city and to the people. And, and that's also kind of ties into a lot of, um, uh, you know, ha having equity within things and the civic moves are the biggest moves architecturally and landscape of equity of for, they're for everyone. They're not just for one person or class or um, group and they're really for um yeah for the people so yeah well i'm going to put you on the spot here <clears throat> you know lanny ebenstein he says he says delegate plaza had grass 100 years ago and 100 years from now it will have grass do you have any thoughts on grass and delegate plaza i mean they're obviously talking about eating yeah. it out and yeah removing the so grass. this is the, the yeah, so I'll give you a summary of the discussion. So it's not, uh, you know, weighing in on things, but at least as a, as, and I said this publicly, so it's part of the record of what my thoughts are on that um, in terms of uh, being able to say it again. So um, uh, the, gla the grass portion of it, it is part of the question. It needs to be part of the historic report that analyzes it. Um, it has had grass for all this time. Um, uh, it, does that mean it has to and it can't change? No, that's not true. Um, and uh, when, when you look at it from a strict, strictly traditional um, city point of view, it's interesting because how many plazas in Spain and Italy do you know that have big pieces of grass in the middle? And the answer is none. 
um, uh, because grass as a plaza is not a Spanish Spain or, um, and which was the number one Spanish colonial revival resource looked to, um, but then, uh, or Italy or the Mediterranean. So it's not a normal thing. Normally in the city, uh, and this was also covered in the um, reconsidering a Plaza de la Guerra um, symposium from 20 plus years ago, was they talked about how that actually the American city is interesting because it took nature and it brought it in as well. So there's lots of trees and things like that, and that like part of our American landscape. So we're a little bit different than Europe. Europe put all nature to the outside, walled the city, and it's all hardscape in general as a generalization. Um, uh, so uh, so there's kind of a catch where, yeah, um, there, it, as a traditional Spanish thing, it's not actually a thing, but as a Americanized Mediterranean thing, you actually do find some instances and you find one in El, uh, um, uh, El Paseo right behind um, Casa de la Guerra, you find a little swatch of grass and that's actually a, a 19, early 1900s done thing as part of integrating a little bit of both into the city. So I can see it argued either way. I think it's perfectly appropriate to go to hardscape um, for those reasons. And it's also perfectly appropriate to have grass. Um, the arguments I see, and this is what I stated in the previous meeting was that um, if there, there is one place that you are going to make a water exception, and I, I under, totally understand and get the whole water argument, we're trying to cut down water, absolutely we're trying to live within our sustainability, and I totally agree. Um, however, the one asterisk is, if we're going to have lawn anywhere in the city, anywhere, you would start with the, if it's a special thing, we want a lawn for the people, um, then you, you would, the first place that would naturally deserve it in that sense, if the lawn is a special thing, is the plaza, Plaza de la Guerra. And so if you are going to put any water on the ground and grow, grow lawn, my thinking as a, art, as a traditional architect for Santa Barbara would be, yeah, it actually makes sense to do it there. So I could see it go that way as well. So I actually do understand and, and like the argument of, of grass in Plaza de la Guerra, and that's nice. Um, I also got outvoted, um, <laughs> so, but I also understand the argument and it's perfectly acceptable to go to hardscape in my mind um, because of those reasons, because it is a part of the traditional language still. Um, and there's plenty of, of plazas that are all hardscape within the American context and the Spanish colonial revival context. So that's where I kind of come down design-wise and kind of go either way. Um, but we also need to wait till we get the historian's report to see if there's any additional analysis um, on it that in that way. So that's kind of where the whole, the whole, that's a long way of answering like, well, should there be a lawn or not, but that's kind of the, the way in which I was thinking about that um, structure. So, well, whatever happens will, will be better than what's there. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the, the key is a movement, a, a improvement on it. Um, it's not always, to, in my mind, it's not always that we should be doing things because they're new, uh, but we shouldn't also just do things because they're old. Uh, we should do things because they're good and they're good for you know re these reasons. And so, uh, we're improving it, I think, is the is the key to it, um, and improving it in a good uh, traditional way, uh, yeah. traditional Santa Barbara language way. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's more to come there, and it's going to be lots yeah. of, lots of meetings. Uh, yeah. Discussing all that. Can we talk about housing uh, within the sure. Pueblo Viejo? Uh, there, there's been talk about building housing downtown and, uh, you know, height levels and allowing for density near uh, where people might work and, you know, eliminating cars. And, and, and so there's an effect on what downtown and that experience is like. There's Peter Lewis's project. I think it's 70, 80 
apartments over by the Staples building down there. Um, that's, you know, it definitely would change the sort of feel of the 400 block. As you approach projects that involve housing in the HLC, what are some of the considerations you're making knowing that we need more rental housing? We also don't need more super expensive housing. And mm -hmm. how do you navigate all of that in terms of your role? Yeah. So um, I would say that, um, and or this well, was actually a, a good discussion early on a few, a number of years ago um, with the whole AUD uh, thing. And, and one of the things that we were seeing, HLC was seeing was that um, on areas that were outskirts of the, uh, the EPV on the outer edges in certain streets, you had like the, these bungalows, single story, little tiny bungalows, and they were zoned next, you know, that region was zoned for like, uh, AUD like prime time spots like um, uh, wh where to put big housing and part of the big problem with that was uh, part of our compatibility findings which I think are good uh, they're right um, rightly structured is does it fit you have to be able to find that it fits it's, it's compatible and mass bulk and scale with the neighborhood and when you have these little tiny you know craftsman single story low slung houses next to these three and four story big apartment buildings the, that question of, of visual conflict of a non non uh, neighborhoody feel um, and does this discrepancy naturally gets brought up um, so at that time I and and I have always been have been consistently through this time a proponent for um, moving down uh, housing downtown where it's more you know you get more density uh, within and buildings appropriately as you approach a downtown typically it feels bigger uh, and more dense um, and that's proper to a downtown because that's hubs of commerce and hubs of, of um, you know, uh, of citizenry and all those things that are happening downtown. Um, and people sort of pack in more. So you can get more units and more housing in a smaller area um, and get better transportation to work um, within and not needing cars as much and things like that uh, in the downtown than you can on the outskirts. And so, or on the edges, the further out edges and blocks. So yeah, I thought it was both most appropriate architecturally and, and for the, the city itself, it made total way more sense and as a traditional Santa Barbara city. Um, and it's also more affordable because it's by design more. Now I'll put a big giant asterisk on that. More affordable. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, it's uh, more affordable, but it's in Santa Barbara. So really nothing's affordable um, in that reality of, of, unless you build it as affordable housing. So that's a good way of doing, of actually getting affordable housing if you really want to get affordable housing. Um, but, uh, but aside from that, just getting housing, which I think is, is good because of the, the current state of things, um, uh, uh, and, and doing it in a long-term sustainable way um, that doesn't rely on the automobile, that doesn't rely on, on those, uh, the modern city, which was super unsustainable, um, uh, as LA has shown us, um, and uh, and so I think that's a good general move to put it downtown and helps at least make it a little less costly because you have smaller units and it's more efficient and there's no backyard and there's no all those other things. And so and it's a way that people have lived for thousands of years. So I don't think it's and, and in great cities, that, that's the way it is. Um, when we lived in Rome for uh, graduate studies, we had uh, only four kids at the time um, and uh, uh, we were in a two bedroom uh, one, you know, the first story up um, and overlooked a little, uh, little piazza and, uh, and we walked everywhere. We didn't have a car. 
but we were downtown and we didn't need a car. We can hop on a bus, hop on a train. Um, and we were in the best shape of our life. And we managed to do it with four kids, four little kids, kindergarten and under. Um, so it was um, a great example to me personally that if a city's done well and like the traditional cities are, you can actually have a lot, a large amount of housing in a beautiful way with a beautiful city and have plenty of outdoor space and move around. Um, so it's not about the private, you know, suburban house and the space of the backyard, which is actually, I think, negative, negatively impacts lots of things, not just the environment. Um, but it's so, yeah, so I, I see it as sort of a good answer to a lot of these issues. But I don't think it's going to make really a lot of affordable housing unless it's by um, uh, by actually built affordable housing. Um, it'll just it'll make a little less expensive, but and it'll make more units, which is also will help over the long term in theory. Uh, lower prices a little bit or make them not grow as fast. But I think the reality is Santa Barbara is always going to be has only been an even more expensive city. Um, but yeah, there's nothing short of making it super ugly to, to help with that. So <laughs> we made it super ugly and, and turned into another LA, then it might be a lot cheaper. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. I, that would I wouldn't fly for sure. But yeah, uh, Anthony, can you talk to me a little bit about your your background in architecture? Like what is yeah. your what kind of architecture is your specialty and how did you get yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So um, I, uh, so I grew originally born and raised in LA, so I can make fun of LA all I want. Um, <laughs> and Bakersfield, because everyone can make fun of Bakersfield. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, 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 originally born and raised in LA, I, um, undergrad in art history, um, architecture history and theory specifically, and then um, in architecture for undergrad, or then, arch- then went into an architecture program for undergrad, and finally uh, did a master's at Notre Dame, specialized in classical, that's why I was in Rome, um, and, uh, and sort of specialized in that, and then started with Harrison Design, the firm I'm with right now, um, uh, 16 years ago, um, came out to the Santa Barbara office and started since then, um, and now I'm a principal, and we've got a small, a smallish office, you know, about 14 people, um, and architects, interior designers, landscape, so we're kind of think of design in, the, in all, the, all aspects of it, um, so that's, sort of my professional background, how I've come to Santa Barbara and worked here um, and um, yeah, and sort of study, you know, studying it from the, from the professional side as well. Um, and we do a, a fair amount of work here, but also all over California and even across the country um, and a lot of historic work. Um, that's one of our loves. Um, and then some other stuff as well, institutional church work, things like that. So that's kind of my general background um, and uh, sort of where I'm, where I'm approaching all these discussions from. So great. So when you're in LA and you're a young Anthony Grumbine, what part of LA did you grow up in? I uh, grew up in Whittier, outer outer southern edge, uh, okay. edge of Orange County, uh, LA County. Right. So. so so talk to me a little bit. Did you know you wanted to be an architect in in high school, or did you want? Oh yeah, to, uh, uh, yeah. So this is a good story because I didn't actually um, I didn't remember this until I was almost finished architecture school, and my one of my best friends growing up, his I. I um, you know, saw his family again, we we're chatting and, um, and I was doing a, my senior thesis was on, or my, my final thesis was on a church and I was doing church design. And uh, his mom said, Oh, remember when you were in seventh grade and we went out to this Arizona trip. Um, and I said, Oh yeah, yeah. I remember that. He said, well, when we went to this chapel that was built in the side of this cliff um, and it was a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright who had done it. Um, I think it was Holy cross was the name of it. Um, Anyways, it's really, really dramatic. It's built on the side of the cliff and it's the shape of a cross. 
and it's all glass and you approach it from behind and then you go into the church and you, then you have this amazing view out over this massive cliff in Arizona. It's super dramatic. And coming from LA, it was the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen and very powerful architecturally. Um, and so I turned to her at that time. I said, this is what I want to do when I grow up. Um, <laughs> and she remembered it. I didn't. And then when she said it, I was like, oh yeah, I do. And I remember that chapel too. She's like, no, you're doing it. You're doing it. Um, but I, I didn't actually plan it for all times. I just kind of went into it um, by things I was good at and um, through some conversations and um, through people helping me to, my, my mother-in-law actually had a suggestion of architecture. I said, like, yeah, that does sound good. I was looking at graphic design and some other things too. And she's like, well, what about, you thought about architecture? And I was like, yeah, I, I'm strong in math and strong in art. And that's a lot of times what people think is it's all just math and art, but um, those are kind of some of the skill sets that you that do are helpful, but the reality is architects are a weird, strange bunch, and we're coming all shapes and sizes. So, um, what did your parents do? Um, so my uh, my dad was uh, ran a um, orthotics company, um, and uh, and my mom raised the nine of us. So uh, <laughs> I'm the third oldest of nine. Okay. So um, yeah. yeah, so that that, that was my uh, upbringing in, in LA. So so that's a good transition because yeah. Anthony. Um, you have quite a large family. Uh, yeah. you, have, you have eight children, and by, right. by only eight. See, now it seems small. Yeah. <laughs> Are you gonna? Maybe you're gonna break the record. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it? I don't know. I don't know. Well, so my wife is the second oldest of fourteen. So uh, I, I we're not breaking any records. So we're we've already lost. So. <laughs> Um, you know, in 2022, such large families is is rare. Yeah. You know, most yeah. you know, fam, you know, people our age, you know, two, three, yeah. maybe four kids, kind of thing. Um, sure. I'm a report. I'm a journalist, you know, so I'm nosy by nature. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, eight kids and 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 why? I mean, it sounds like sure. both of you came from large families, so it's just kind of yeah. part of what you're coming. Yeah, with. I mean, both both of us came from large families, so um, I think a lot of it was we weren't scared of it. It was sort of, that was, we were used to it in that sense. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, in Whittier in a three bedroom, one bath house with, you know, nine of us. So it wasn't like we had a lot of, a lot of space and you learn to sacrifice for others and also take really fast showers. Um, <laughs> uh, because you only have your little slot time slot in the morning. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, but we both had very positive experiences with our, um, you know, in large families and we really enjoyed it. Um, it's a lot of work um, and it's, but it's also a lot of fun and it's a great blessing. And um, yeah, we've really enjoyed and, uh, and now, you know, our oldest just graduated college and uh, it's really awesome to see, you know, uh, your, your children kind of grow up and, and really sort of take flight and, and um, yeah, become uh, you know, active parts of um, yeah, active parts of larger society. And uh, yeah, so it's really, yeah, it's a, it's the most rewarding thing, you know, do get to do a, all kinds of fun stuff with architecture and review boards and all kinds of things of like that. But the most rewarding thing for sure is, um, is being a father and seeing, um, you know, seeing, seeing your children, um, yeah, really do wonderful things. So you don't, you don't look like you're sleep deprived. I mean, you, uh, maybe you're yeah, that's that our youngest is five. We, we <laughs> at least got past that. Yeah. Well, I, I was sleep deprived for the first 20 years. So, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> You went to Notre Dame, and and can you talk to me a little bit about your uh, just sort of faith? I mean, I know sure, that you're, yeah. um, um, you know, yeah, faith what, what 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 is that? What does that mean? And there's a nexus with your architecture, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm I'm a Catholic, and 
um, in case you didn't guess from the eight kids in Notre Dame. Um, but but uh, yeah, so uh, and I, I see really um, I see the, the the sort of beautiful connection between um, you know being called like as a vocation of an architect where it's an artist and you're called to beauty and you're trying kind of. Uh, portray the greatest things and the highest aspirations of an idea, right? So um, whether that idea is a, a idea like um, you know the 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 civic state and the and um, the town and the and what that civilization is, or it's an idea of um, you know of someone's house and their what their where they live and what that mean is meaningful to them and um, sort of very personal thing, whether it's a you know, a state or whatever, uh, or whether it's a, a house of God or a church, or, you know, that temple. Um, so you're basically conveying ideas and the beauty uh, is, is trying to, is trying to express that uh, beauty literally is trying to express that idea um, in the highest way and highest aspiration. So um, when it comes to church work, it's very beautiful for me personally um, uh, to work on churches and, and as, you know, someone of faith and expressing those ideas. And then when I'm working on someone's house, it's beautiful to work on those ideas and uh, what those mean and what what family means and what their family is. And um, and so, yeah, so I guess it plays out in that way. And I, I um, very much enjoy that that sort of um, uh, call that I feel as a vocation to uh, express beauty in these different methods um, and in these different places. Um, so what do you what do you when you look at a building like most people look at a building and they'll like it's a tall building or yeah <laughs> oh i like the color or yeah. you know it's that's interesting they'll, they'll point out like the obvious features yeah. you what do you appreciate in a in a in a design of a good building you talked earlier about the three things you know and yeah and yeah functionality and, and looks and ha- having it to um you know fulfill all those requirements but what do you you know to be an yeah. architect, yeah. you must be looking at everything all the time. What do you appreciate about a building? Yeah, um, I think probably, um, so um, I think the principles of that uh, do tie to the, those early principles in terms of like firmitas being strength. Um, so let's just start with that one. So uh, a building to, to sort of convey strength Think of it as if we didn't, we couldn't cheat and have steel and whatever and whatever and, and um, reinforced concrete. How would that building be expressed? And I think that what will happen is you'll see, for example, all the columns line up or the or the the structure lines up, and the weight is distributed down into the ground. And so, just as a whole, the building first sort of presents itself at a massing level. And this is also a key part for HLC in terms of looking at whether it's mass, bulk, and scale are appropriate to the, to the street and to the neighborhood and to everything. Well, when you look at the building and if you have something that's lopsided or it looks like a very weak bottom story because there's all these openings, this big fat building on top of it that's just so, looks like it's so heavy, it would crush that thing and drop down. Well, if that's not expressing that, it's sort of the weight that's carrying down and sort of the seriousness and the gravitas of the building in a strong way that makes it feel like it's this permanent, beautiful thing. So part of it is just on the scale of the massing and proportions and the way in which the weight is being carried down uh, in a pleasing manner. So, um, you know, it might be a series of arches or it might be just a series of openings or one major opening, but sort of that kind of overall composition is a sort of a big picture zoomed out view. And then 
So a pleasing composition um, and, and appropriate openings and things carrying down to the ground. Um, and then kind of, of as you get closer to that building and a, a clear hierarchy. So where's the front door? You know, the front door should express itself as welcome here, even if it's off center or wherever on the corner or however, it's a clear, um, it's telling you, that building's telling you how to approach it, where to come in, and it's addressing the pedestrian in a very uh, visual, intuitive way. And so when people oftentimes are like, well, I, don't, I don't like that building, but I don't know why, um, one of the first questions is, well, where's, where, where do you walk in? Where do you enter? Uh, because that's uh, the way the building addresses you, um, you know, so it's kind of reaching out to you and saying, here it is, welcome, and here's, here's how you come into this building. Um, and usually there's also a hierarchy of like more ornamentation or more beauty around that entrance because it's special. It's where you come in or the main lower level is like it's uh, where shops are, things like that. And they get it gets more articulated. It gets more detail. It gets more refinement because it's more public. And then above that might be more private. And so appropriately, the windows are simpler or other things are kind of um, they tell you about themselves and they tell you what their, their function is and what they're doing and um, how important or not they are, whether they're a background piece, which is very important to have good backgrounds, or whether they're the front and center main event, uh, main attraction, part of the building. So the way the kind of building speaks to you um, is a way I kind of look at it right off the bat is like, what is this, how is this building relating to you as a, as a viewer and also to the rest of the street? Because it's not by itself, you know, usually it's in downtown, especially you're you have a lot of neighbors, other buildings you're talking, the building is talking to and needs to relate to. And um, so it's not just itself in, its, in a vacuum, it's in itself with relation to its neighbors. Um, and so is it, is it a nice neighbor of, of a building or does it just totally ignore its neighbors and do its own thing? In which case the question is really, is it so important of a building that it needs to do its own thing and draw attention to itself or, or why can't it be part of the bigger picture fabric? Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, so that's kind of how I, uh, I that's start fascinating. relating them to buildings. And then as you get closer, what should happen is the detail of, and Spanish colonial revival is one of the simpler languages of, of traditional architecture. And so as you get closer to Spanish colonial revival buildings, you don't have a lot of moldings or you don't have a lot of you know detailing around the windows or things like that. Usually it's on the simpler end, but you still have a little bit of detail, a little, just a bull nose, nicely curved in plaster and maybe one step or something in the plaster that gives a little shadow line, just something simple usually that as you get closer, there's a little something more to see. And then you go to the door handle and there's something cool wrought iron door handle that you grab. And all it takes is a little bit of detail at each stage. But as you get closer to that building, there still is a little bit more to see. And so that's part of the, what is dead about a lot of the architecture nowadays is the ornamentation, even if it's super simple, it's not there. And so when you get closer to a building, you saw the same thing. You saw it from 100 feet, and now you're seeing it from five feet, and it's pretty much the same thing. So <clears throat> so if that, I don't know if that makes yeah. sense, but that's yeah. also a, a way to, in, to enjoy the beauty of the building on every level as you get closer. So Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. When you talk about ornamentation, does your head explode or, or are you in heaven when you look at like a Jeff Shelton project, you know, where there's no, so I, th I think Jeff Shelton does a great job with ornamentation. He understands the deep meaning of a lot of it. Um, and which in a way that many architects don't, um, and, and don't study it. Um, and it's, uh, I think it comes very clearly from his deep analysis of things. 
he's very playful with it, of course. He has his way of, of, of expressing and interpreting it. Um, you know, another person, another architect in that vein is, you know, Antoni Gaudi, which is extremely understanding of ornamentation and doing his own thing as well <clears throat> in a highly geometricized way. So um, there's lots of fun you can have with ornamentation. Um, but that being said, um, there's also bad ornamentation where you just stick it on, just stick it on, and you haven't studied the proportions. And that ornament that you put on needs to be in relationship to the thing that are around, things that are around it. So oftentimes what happens is people will stick on the wrong proportion molding and it'll be way too small or way too big and they aren't scaling it to that thing. So if it's a doorway, it should be scaled to the doorway and every molding has a name and has a history and has a way in which it, it can and can't be used. Um, and it sounds like it's like, you know, only you could just copy and paste stuff, but you can't, you have to really work it in. Um, and there's logics. And, and when you look at all the great architects of the past, you can look at them. Uh, and like I always say, like you have to, you know, and the, the saying, which is a great saying, you have to know the rules before you can break them at least well. Um, and you look at Michelangelo and the way he breaks rules, he breaks rules left, right, and center, but he does it in an absolutely exquisite way. And because he knows them so well, he can break them in a clever way. Whereas other people break the rules and they don't even know the rule. So it's very obvious that they didn't know the rule. They broke it because they don't understand that this molding or profile is supposed to stop at this point and pick it up on the next step over or whatever it is, where Michelangelo will be like, oh yeah, watch this. Boom, I'm dropping it here and I'm pulling this molding over and you know, just totally um, shocking in one sense, but at the same time, super playful and clever. And he knows what that molding, uh, where it was coming from. And he's, he's breaking the rules in a really great way. So- yeah. Hey, we, we got a few more minutes. I want to ask you about a couple of things. The police sure. station. Yeah. Uh, you've been, you've seen that a lot. It's moving ahead. Been through a lot of reviews as, uh, you know, too close to Coda at one time, you know, not very, where's the entrance, very pedestrian, unfriendly a step back. There's been talk about it's a lot on one lot, you know, the orientation yeah. of it. Um, as we stand here today, what's, what stands out about the police station building to you? Um, I, I think it's um, I think it's moving along pretty well. I think that um, some of the uh, I don't worry as much about big buildings on the street front as other people do. Um, <clears throat> I've, if they're done well um, downtown, that's actually their appropriate place um, to really front the street um, in a strong way. Um, at a certain point, I agree that then, um, and I think that point is where sort of people stop being human. When you get to up to a certain height, people look down, look like ants, and then um, you, you're disconnected from a, a personal way. So around four or five stories is actually, a, a, in my mind, and, and not just in my mind, but in most traditional cities' minds, um, the, a, the high point that you don't want to go much higher than because then it starts to be disconnected. Um, but when you're walking on the street, you're actually on front, like even if you're across the street, it's still you're only seeing the first two stories. When you're walking alongside that, that sidewalk, you're only seeing the first half of the first story. So if it's done well, I think it could be a perfectly good, um, appropriate way of expressing. So um, I think that the detailing of things uh, as our architects nowadays are, are a little bit um, a little tepid about going into too much too much detail. But I think. Um, if you look at buildings, public buildings like the courthouse or plenty of others, um, or like City Hall or um, other major, or even the fire stations, um, 
uh, there there is a, a tradition of a lot of beauty with them and and with a decent amount of ornamentation. So I think we should be pushing a little more towards that. Um, but I think all in all, it's it's a good it's a good building and um, yeah, it's good good architects doing it. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's and I think it'll be. Um, yeah, it's going in, a, as we we say, HLC, it's going in the right direction. Um, I can talk about it more. Uh, yeah, I can talk about it more freely because um, it, it's not in our jurisdiction and we're not going to be seeing it. So, um, but I, I actually, I was part of the review process originally with the architects. Um, so anyways, yeah. yeah, I think it's good. And I think it'll serve the city well. And it does need to be a big building and we do need to get it to work into the massings. But um, yeah, I think it's in the right, going in the right direction. And finally, downtown and the State Street Promenade, and obviously yeah. there's this huge consultant and studies, and it's taking a long yeah. time, and uh, there's debate about what are we going to do now versus the long yeah. term. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, do, you, do you portability? Let's get these things portable. Let's go back to the way we were. Um, nothing went through HLC, as we know. It yeah. was kind of rushed, and now it is what it is, and the 500 block because a lot it's a lot of people a lot of energy a lot of activity and some of it looks great some of it not um yeah. if you could sort of end sure. with your sort of like here's my view of the promenade yeah. what would you say yeah so i think um i think my view is uh um, for potentially the first time ever the city moved too fast um, uh, uh, first and last time that I'll ever be. Yeah, said. first and last time. Um, so uh, it was very unfortunate in my mind. Um, and actually, I uh, I uh, will um, take uh, part of the blame because I didn't do what I should have done, which was uh, react faster about it. But um, I, I sent a letter right as there were the city council was meeting for, for the last time to make a decision. And um, so it was sort of the, the horse was or the horse was already out of the barn in that by that point. Um, but I saw back then, two two years ago, it was or beginning of June or end of May, um, that we were about to say all systems go um, and not take a second to think about or give a little bit of guidance to what that should, could be. And I think it literally could have been a one day charrette that figured it out and we were done. Um, and we would have had a much, much better State Street. Um, but what happened was it was basically for the right reasons, economic interests and also opening things up and having it open downtown, which is great, which is great. All good things. But we opened the floodgates of like anyone could do anything. And so we ended up with every material that Home Depot has ever sold and way more um, uh, as uh, these hodgepodge things that got built. And everything, the irony was, there's way more energy wasted in in all these little one-offs than by coming up with something that was more uniform, that looked nice, way nicer, that gave the same seating or about the same seating, accomplished the same stuff, that everyone wasn't have to design their own stuff and get their own contractor to do things from welding to um, you know vinyl fencing to whatever. Um, and um, and it it's also would have been more accessible and all the, all these things that could have been with a, literally a one day charrette um, and it was, and we just let it go. And then unfortunately people think that if you go to a standard um, part of it, the pushback in the, within some of the business community um, has been that, uh, that they think they're going to lose it. And the reality is you, first of all, this is a 
uh, and this goes back to thinking about the city first. Um, yes, we need to think about the merchants and about um, the businesses and about that. Absolutely, 100%, it's a core part of the city. But we also need to be thinking about, or and we need to be thinking about um, what the city is for the people as well. And beautiful, a beautiful thing is important. And I think that there is not in any way exclusionary of having outdoor dining and, and those things. So if portability allows you to clear stuff and clean stuff out and a long-term good thing, that's good. Um, the other ways might be just tables and umbrellas and, um, and some pots with chains or whatever that give you the space or at least give a lot of the same space um, that is currently there. But really the reality is um, we made this, we made the reasoning for emergency reasoning and it made sense as emergency for the first couple of months. After that, it stopped making sense because huge amount of tourism, everyone's outside, everyone's enjoying the space. This really should be a nice space and it doesn't take much to do it. Um, and it doesn't take much to change it either. And everyone complaining about, oh yeah, we built this thing. Well, they were also told originally from the beginning that you're gonna have to take it down when, when everything's over. Well, everything's over at least in two and a half years later to some degree or another. And we're, we have to continue on with our lives in some way. So let's make this a reasonable thing that is organized, beautiful, way more beautiful than it currently is and super simple. And I think that that's all doable and you can have lots of chairs and tables out there, um, but things can be much more portable. Um, not just the decking and portable, but actually portable within it. Do I think that the long-term that all of State Street, State Street should be shut down? Not necessarily, but not, I'm not necessarily here or there with it. I think it really needs to be studied well and come up with a really great, not just either shut it all down or open it all up, um, but uh, a really great proper Santa Barbara designed uh, uh, you know, outdoor move, um, a public move. And this is a great opportunity. So it was did a good job of showing us that yes, State Street can shut down and still be vibrant and be even potentially even more vibrant. And that's great. That was a good thing right out of the gate. Um, I, I was part of the AIA um, charrettes uh, as well, the or first one, and then uh, a little part on the, on the advisory side of the second one. Um, but I, I, from the beginning, most of the AIA people and most people thinking about it have thought it would be good to close at least part of State Street, which it turned out to be true. Um, it totally can work. Um, but now it's like, you know, we're so many years away from actually having anything done. The reality is, and this was also from last year, part of the commentary was um, what we, everyone need to realize is it's going to take years to get a plan, years and years. It's going to take years and years and years to fund and build that plan. And it's going to be done in portions. So if we're looking at at least five years before anything's actually built out on State Street or and only part of State Street, mm -hmm. shouldn't we at least have a basic good interim design in the meantime that actually is doable as a, as a interim solution? Because the reality is when I look at it, it's like some of those interim solutions are going to be around for 10 years probably. Mm -hmm. um, so why in the heck are we like allowing this to be a B, a B level city or even a C level city in terms of what it looks like? compared to what it could be, which is total A level city and have almost all the same number of seats and, and openness that it currently has. So well, anyway, I'm a little opinionated about it, but. Um. We should have led with that. That was great. No. Um, Anthony, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time to download your incredible brain on architecture and <laughs> all your knowledge and insight and information. I can tell you're a teacher and the way you explain these things and the way you get into them. And 
uh, your passion. And, and I think that's the thing that shines through when you're on the, the um, HLC. It's just you are very um, appreciative of the opportunity to be on mm-hmm. that board. And when the, when some of the people to your left or your right start, you know, getting intense with their comments, you have a good way of, okay, I heard you, let's move on. So yeah. that's great. Uh, but appreciate your time, Anthony. And yeah, absolutely. Great conversation. And uh, uh, good luck with everything with uh, downtown and your other HLC yeah. projects. And uh, yeah. I'll talk to you later. Take yeah, care. super awesome, Josh. Oh, can I add one, one last little sure. thing? Yeah. Um, uh, just uh, I saw your article as well, Newshawk, for um, on the funk zone, and because it's not in our jurisdiction, that new big project in the funk zone. Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I did want to throw one idea out there for everyone to consider, and when they when they look at like judging architecture, right? Um, and I think this is a principle that can be used across all of Santa Barbara. And I should have mentioned this earlier. That's why I was bringing it up now. But, um, was um, that it doesn't matter HL uh, well, public VA or not. Uh, look at that building, close your eyes for a second, or look at the design for the building, close your eyes for a second, and think, if you just saw a snapshot of that building, would you know you were in Santa Barbara? Mm. And I think that is a really great way of judging any of the architecture, because no matter if it's modern, no matter if it's whatever, what, uh, Victorian, um, Spanish, whatever, there are so many ways in which all of our buildings have historically, even all different styles, still been expressions of Santa Barbara and you can close your eyes and see a building on De La Vina that's a Victorian. And you would probably guess if someone just showed you a picture of it and you were familiar with Santa Barbara at all, you probably guess, oh, yeah, I could see that in Santa Barbara versus Texas or versus um, you know, L.A. or wherever. There is different qualities, whether it's stone or whether it's colors, whatever it is. There's all kinds of different ways in which we have done our details and our language in a way that's very Santa Barbaran. So I think that's a good litmus test for any of our design built for uh, review boards to just look at if I, you know, if I saw a snapshot of that out of context, would I know I was in Santa Barbara? Yeah. So, And if we saw that building outside of Santa Barbara, or if we saw that building, I don't think we think no, we're in Santa Barbara, but I don't know. If <laughs> oh, there you go. I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> okay. All right, Anthony. All right. Thanks a lot. For Great to talk to you, Josh. All right. See you. Bye. <laughs>